All right. Let's get it going right here, right now. This is New Generation Declassified. And of course, you're listening to an all-new episode of New Generation Declassified here. And I am your host. I am the one and only. This is the Jadster with you as I am every single week. Taking that journey back in time. Going back and looking at those old days like uh, all old-timers do. And looking at this this week, the Survivor Series. Who doesn't love the Survivor Series, especially from the old school era? When we go back in time and look at these shows, uh, Survivor Series, especially when we look at pay-per-views, I was always a big fan of the Survivor Series, of the Survivor Series format. I love the thought of the teams. I love the mixing of the individuals, bringing some of the old feuds back, igniting some new feuds. Uh, when they got the Survivor Series concept together, they did it pretty perfectly, and uh, we are going to talk about one instance where they did it pretty well during this new generation era. Uh, of course, between, in my opinion only, 1993 and early 1997, we have some that say maybe it's not, maybe it's a little bit later, but that's okay. We're all entitled to our opinion. We all have those, just like we've got something on the bottom half of our uh, rear end. We've all got one of those, too, and sometimes people have a lot to say uh, that I think uh, we could argue about. And one thing is, when did this new generation start? So I think that the Survivor Series that fall into this new generation era cover the years 1993 through 1996, because around the time of that change of the Raw set, like we talked about about a month and a half ago with Joe Feeney, that's when the new generation is completely gone. There's no elements left of the new generation. We've got the fancy stage. We've got the red ring ropes. We've got the change in the logo. That's where it all started to kind of uh, really see a transition, but only a year or two or three or four earlier, man, this was a completely different looking company. Uh, but I want to look at Survivor Series 1996. Now, we might be talking about this one a little bit longer than I had originally anticipated. And I don't mean in today's episode, I mean in a follow-up episode, because I actually had a couple people that I had approached about recording with me today that couldn't make it, but that's okay. I still want to continue talking about the episode, uh, excuse me, about the event, uh, that will join me to give their take on uh, Survivor Series 96 and kind of the happenings going on around not only the WWF, but wrestling in 1996, because as we know... In 1996, WCW and the NWO were just completely taking over the uh, wrestling airwaves. And it was uh, quite the battle for the WWF to put out something competitive. And it started at the top. It started with who they had as champion going into the Survivor Series in 1996. But there were so many other little storylines that happened in that Survivor Series that really shaped the foundation for not only the uh, kind of transition era into the Attitude Era, but the absolute Attitude Era as well. Uh, but Survivor Series 1996, a little bit of a departure, straying away from the primary focus, which was the team's aspect, which could have been four, could have been five. Even back in 1987, it was even more. It was like 10 or 12 when you had the tag teams involved. But that teams of five strive to survive or the teams of four battle at the Survivor Series with the funny names and the old uh, team captain and, you know, the, the big feuds being the, uh, the focal points of both sides uh, on the captain end. I can't say enough about how much I love that concept, but in 1996, they really did steer away from it. 
And they gave you a little bit of that classic Survivor Series uh, model, but they absolutely uh, went ahead and, and made an emphasis more on some of the marquee matches that the WWF had to offer in 1996 than just going with the team strategy-based uh, matches that they had. I, now, I kind of wish I could figure out, you know, with a clever uh, fantasy booking hat, Maybe in 1996, I would have done this a little bit better, but had they eliminated just all of these singles matches, period, where would these uh, guys have fit onto this card or what matches could they have been added to? Because uh, this was a stacked show. I- I'm not going to lie. This is a, a absolute marquee event of the uh, 93 to early 97 time frame. Uh, of course, taking place at Madison Square Garden. It was the 10th annual Survivor Series, uh, having begun in 1987. Uh, a great show if you look back at it. The, the original Survivor Series concept was to pair Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant across the ring from one another for the first time since WrestleMania three, And Andre going over in some capacity, albeit not over the Hulkster, over Bam Bam Bigelow, but... It was just them touching that made that pay-per-view such a, uh, a must-see show. And if you go back and watch the Survivor Series original event, some of it is a little fast-forward worthy, but the main event is full of uh, you know big, muscly, beefy dudes beating the shit out of each other. And I think that's what drew a lot of us to professional wrestling at the start. I know it did for me because I remember very, very, very slightly in the the far reaches of my brain, the original build for Survivor Series, because I started watching in the spring of 1987, and I faintly, faintly, faintly remember the 87 Survivor Series. I kind of remember the build for the 88 one and watching it on pay-per-view, and then from 89 on, I have a very clear recollection of basically everything I did leading up to uh, watching the Survivor Series 1989 back uh, when it hit video because come on pay-per-view was expensive you couldn't convince your parents to get it every year we got SummerSlam in my house but i remember survivor series 88 and wrestlemania 4 watching that in the neighborhood at somebody else's house because they were events and they were something that the whole neighborhood would gather to watch and those are great childhood memories for sure that the chadster has uh milton bradley's karate fighters presents the 10th annual Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Growing up in the New York City area, this was huge. Anytime that the WWF did a big event at Madison Square Garden, there was always press going on. The Daily News would be covering it basically every week leading up to it. Uh, They'd be on the radio. They'd be on television. You would see little uh, little uh, inserts inside of uh, the Sunday paper. I mean, it was uh, it was always something to look forward to when there was a big event in the uh, in the tri-state area and at Madison Square Garden. You can't get any bigger than that. What I thought at the time was cool about the fact it was at Madison Square Garden was Madison Square Garden hadn't had a pay-per-view since WrestleMania 10. And I know there's not that many in between, but anytime they went to the garden, it became a huge show because we lost the monthly house shows being televised. We're very lucky to grow up with that in the New York City area. But to have it at Madison Square Garden on your home turf was a really cool part of that show and a part of the build. And like I've said a million times before, I feel like I knew everybody that was in attendance except for me. Because uh, I knew so many friends that were going and, you know, this guy's uh, dad had Skybox. This guy was in the front row. This person was here. This person was there. And I watched it, uh, I believe, uh, the next day 
on a VHS copy of the pay-per-view, courtesy of my uh, my buddy, who did introduce me to ECW a few months or uh, about a year earlier. So I had a hookup and uh, watched it the day after, but remember watching it uh, like it was yesterday. Uh, so we're going to run that down here. The uh, tagline they say was back to attack. I didn't remember that being a uh, front and center tagline until you look at the poster. The uh, pay-per-view poster as well as the Coliseum video had just a very bland uh, backdrop of two New York City buildings, I believe Rockefeller Center, and uh, four floating heads of Shawn Michaels, Psycho Sid, Bret Hart, and Steve Austin. So spoiler alert, the two big matches on this show are Shawn Michaels, the world champion, taking on challenger Psycho Sid, and Bret Hart in his return match, taking on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, the match itself that kicked off this show, I believe, let's pull it up, it was uh, for the house. And uh, it was, I don't know if it was on the free-for-all. Does it say if it was on the free-for-all here in my little Wikipedia notes? But uh, Aldo Montoya, Bart Gunn, Bob Holly, and Jesse James defeat the newly minted heel Billy Gunn, Justin Hawk, Bradshaw, Sal Sincere, and the Sultan with the Iron Sheik and uh, Uncle Zebekiah, a.k.a. Dirty Dutch Mantel. Uh, now, this match itself, look, this is more of a throwback to the original Survivor Series concept, but this also goes to show you how far it kind of fell in Vince McMahon's favor is that he had this as just a complete undercard assortment of talent because that was the beauty of the earlier Survivor Series pay-per-views was that you would get the lesser guys mixed with the top guys. So let's use, for instance, the main event of Survivor Series 88. You got the Hulkster and the Macho Man as the team captains, but then you throw in a Coco Beware, you throw in a Hercules and a Hillbilly Jim. They kind of made the team a little more vulnerable. And, you know, you could see a couple of those guys eating the pin. But when you got a team that is strictly being portrayed on the lower part of the card, you know, it kind of looks like uh, who the heck do you think is going to win? And uh, the Aldo team uh, getting that to kick off a, a great show. And uh, I'm sure the crowd was very happy. If you were in attendance, please uh, raise your hand and tell us if you were happy with that result. Uh, but the pay-per-view itself kicks off with uh, the tag team elimination match, which again, love these, but in the bigger matches they had years before, it kind of got a little confusing. You know, you got the, uh, the, the, the year that it kicked off 87 and 88 where it was like just multiple teams and multiple guys. And when your guy got one of your teammates got pinned, you left. It was very confusing and quite just tricky to follow, but they really shortened it down. And the opener of this match is Henry O and Phineas I, the Godwins with Hillbilly Jim teaming with the newly debuting Doug Furness and Phil LaFon to take on the British Bulldog and Owen Hart, as well as the new rockers, Marty Jannetty and Leaf Cassidy, a.k.a. Al Snow. Now, this match is not bad. I actually do like this match a lot. It's uh, very exciting. It's got some good action and really a showcase for Furnace and LaFon, who came in on a high, basically coming out of ECW, uh, having been around the world, getting to ECW and being such a cool part of the ECW landscape when they would come in because they were so different. And I remember reading about Doug Furness in magazines and, in, in uh, you know, the big book of wrestling when I first started to kind of explore the business. 
and uh, had always heard so much about him, but never really saw him until he was in ECW. So when they got to the WWF, like I knew what to expect out of him. And they're a little neutered compared to maybe their more intense style in, in, in other promotions. But uh, what a showcase for them. Uh, the crowd, you know, if you have a smart crowd in New York, they knew who they were. And they're positioned as baby faces. They uh, got the endorsement of the Godwins with some handshakes when they got to the ring. Um, and they're the sole survivors. And they beat the Bulldog and Owen, which is basically who they'd be paired with through the spring. I can recall going to a show at Madison Square Garden in March 1997. And the, the tag team championship match was Furnace and LaFon versus the Bulldog and Owen. And great matches. You know, you can't say anything bad about the pairing of the four guys, but uh, in this instance, I guess they had higher hopes for Furnace and LaFon. It just didn't really translate. And a year later at Survivor Series 97, they would just kind of be thrown in with Team Canada, I guess because of uh, Mr. LaFon being Canadian. And um, they were really portrayed as kind of jobbers and uh, kind of sucked to see how far they had fallen. But, you know, what are you going to do with guys that weren't, so flashy, but we're great technically. Maybe not the promo chops that WWF superstar would have, but I thought it was a great team, and this was a great showcase for them. And uh, if you watch the match, I'm sure you'll agree. One thing to look for that in that match is a injury to Marty Jannetty's knee, I believe. His knee is, is somewhere in his leg, but Marty Jannetty uh, hits the ropes and collapses and uh, basically can't work the rest of the match and is eliminated. Not uh, not long after that, and it's kind of kind of sucks to see Marty Jannetty get hurt like that, especially with how uh, kind of exciting his offense can be during a uh, a match of that caliber. Uh, but then we get to our first singles match of the evening, and this is where the departure is from the Survivor Series traditional format. You get the Undertaker and Mankind in a match where Paul Bearer is suspended above the ring. Uh, notable for this match is the fact that this is where the undertaker debuted the full blown leather outfit that he would go on to wear for basically, uh, you know, the majority of 1997, uh, before transitioning back to the, well, transitioning to the, the attire you'd see him wear pretty much through uh, the ministry days. But this is where he, uh, completely transformed, loses the purple, and just, I think, debuts one of the cooler looks that he ever had. Uh, descends from the ceiling, has like these wings. He uh, he takes on Mankind, a typical, you know, rough and tumble match. They're brawling all over the place. Uh, Paul Bearer suspended above the ring, plays into the match, you know, very well as they have the camera on him. And that's your typical, you know, Vince McMahon, uh, have the manager play up the fear of heights, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and it all leads to will Undertaker get his hands on Paul Bearer at the end of the match after he wins. He beats Mankind clean in the center of the ring. Uh, and then we would see the executioner, Terry Gordy, get involved as well at the end to uh, rescue Paul Bearer. But you got to remember, this is just a month after Buried Alive. So he was gone uh, the, the prior month. He was buried alive. His hand comes through the casket. And what do we see? We see another reinvention of the character that we've all grown to love so much and this was uh again one of the the better reincarnations of the undertaker but you know kind of uh, uh low on the card second match um on a stack show i guess in 1996 you know you're you're not used to seeing uh, the undertaker in any kind of other role you know he's taking on mankind it's a it's a great match and uh you know more to come in the uh, the months between those two and obviously undertaker would have a huge 
1997. But moving on to the next traditional Survivor Series match. Uh, no team captains here. It wasn't really a, uh, a, a designed gimmick like it was in years past. But you have Mark Merrow and Hunter Hearst Helmsley at the forefront of their teams. Uh, and the team being Mark Merrow, Jake Roberts, the stalker, and the debuting Rocky Maivia, who we would see videos in the weeks leading up to the Survivor Series. And you didn't know what to expect out of him. You know, you, you're no Rocky Johnson. If you were an old enough fan, you knew who the high chief Peter Maivia was. I didn't know who he was outside of just a couple of video clips I had seen. Uh, didn't really know the impact that the high chief had until years later. Uh, they take on the team of Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Jerry Lawler, Crush, and the on his way to becoming a babyface. Gold dust. This is where the seeds were dropped, uh, almost like um, what do you call a uh, little uh, little trail of gold dust's uh, root to becoming a babyface. As in the prior to the match uh, promo with Doc Hendricks, Triple H makes eyes at Marlena, and that was the uh, the the catalyst for their feud that would go into uh, about the midpoint of 1997, seeing the debut of China because of that feud. But also notable that Mister Perfect was not at ringside with the Intercontinental Champion Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Only a few weeks prior, Hunter Hearst Helmsley had beat Mark Merrow for the Intercontinental Championship with the swerve that Mr. Perfect, who was due to make his in-ring return, turned uh, Mark Merrow, uh, costing him the belt. And uh, this was the end of Mr. Perfect in the WWF until he came back in 2002. And we wouldn't see him appear in WCW until the summer of 1997. So that was a huge loss, uh, in my opinion, because I think Mr. Perfect at that point could have been in a huge, huge upper card spot, had the plans, I'm sure, worked out in the way it was going to be. There was always the rumor that Larry the Axe was uh, kind of promoting Mr. Perfect as the next WWF champion on shows in the Minneapolis area around that time. And uh, he left in uh, November 96 and uh, did not come back until the Royal Rumble in 2002, which, of course, was a great return and uh, had a nice little run for uh, the perfect one. But the match itself, 4-on-4 four four Survivor Series match, 23 minutes, 44 seconds. Uh, the Rock, Rocky Maivia, getting the victory, uh, defeating Goldust and Crush at the end there to get the, uh, the win, uh, beating him with a shoulder breaker, which, you know, not the most impactful move, but they got it over pretty good. We saw The Rock go to the top rope, do the flying body press, which he would also use as a finisher in the early days of Rocky Maivia. Um, he was The Rock. I mean, what do you want? He had a, he had a good charisma to him, but it was the gimmick, you know, the uh, the weird, you know, uh, streamer attire that he had, and the the big furry hair and the uh, the chia pet hair, I guess you'd say, and you know, kind of lame music, and the crowd didn't really know what to do with them, but you know. We were conditioned to think, okay, baby face, cheer for him. But, you know, it was Madison Square Garden that months later, as portrayed fairly recently on the sitcom Young Rock, uh, started the Die Rocky Die chance. And that really became the uh, the benchmark for The Rock to uh, evolve out of Rocky Maivia. And uh, it all starts at the Survivor Series in 1996. They would then go on to have a little bit of a tease with Sonny, who was on commentary during this match uh, that she might manage Rocky Maivia. Uh, 
didn't work out that way. Uh, Rock would have matches with Salvatore Sincere shortly after Survivor Series on television just to get him on and a couple easy wins. But, uh, you know, you weren't blown away by Rocky Maivia. You know, it wasn't anything that you were like, oh, wow, I got to see what this guy does next. And they catapulted him to the Intercontinental title in uh, the early part of 97. And whether or not it was too much too soon, I was at that same Madison Square Garden house show I mentioned uh, with Furnace and LaFon and the Bulldog and Owen. And uh, the, the Intercontinental Championship match was Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Rocky Maivia. And... I mean, Rocky just had like no reaction whatsoever. And it's kind of because we didn't really know what to do with the guy. So he's the rock now. He's the greatest uh, actor we've got of our generation of wrestling uh, folks, right? Rolling your eyes if you're uh, listening to this. But what are you going to do? This was the start. You got to start somewhere. It was at Survivor Series 96 for the rock. Now, I would say this is really the main event of the show, the fifth match of the night. Technically, it is Bret Hart making his return for the first time on pay-per-view since WrestleMania 12. If you want to go back in your new generation declassified uh, library, you would know that when we watched a little bit of a uh, Bollywood film not too long ago with our pal Husey, we saw that Bret Hart had wrestled on the Middle Eastern tour that the WWF had in the summer of 1996. The excuse being that Brett signed on for these matches prior to losing at WrestleMania 12 and was contractually obligated to appear at these events. So you did get a lot of Bret Hart in the summer of 96. If you were in the overseas markets, uh, Brett also did go, go and film the uh, show Walker. Was it no Lone Lone Star? No Lonesome Dove. That was it. He would go on to film Lonesome Dove, which if you remember your WWF magazine database, he's on the cover of one of the magazines in his Lonesome Dove attire, available through IB Exclusives if you'd want one signed, because I've got one. And um, this is the first time we're seeing Brett on pay-per-view since. Now, we saw him on television. It's not like he wasn't around. There was a little bit of a story that popped up in the fall of 96 that we were going to see Brett jumping ship and going to WCW just like everybody else. So they brought the storyline to the television and they had an in-ring interview where Brett not only declared that he was going to be with the WWF forever, which uh, a great reaction by Vince McMahon cheering. All right. you know, and, and, and very enthusiastic about Brett Stain, but also going on to say that he would love to challenge Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, handpicked opponent for the Survivor Series. And once, you know, you're kind of minted by Bret Hart as the handpicked opponent, you're already, you've just ascended. Now we saw, look, Austin wins the King of the Ring in June 96. In August, he's on the free-for-all. He beats Yoko Zuna in a kind of slip on a banana peel moment for Yoko, where Yoko uh, falls off the top rope. And he's kind of like, you know, kind of floating through that undercard, you know, beating guys. The stunner's getting over. But really, uh, you know, the promos are starting to get a little more uh, mature in their, their sense that he's starting to say ass, hell, damn, crap, all the stuff we didn't hear on television at that point. And uh, when Brett picks him to be his opponent, it just completely catapults you to the next uh, level. And this was the, the absolute launching pad for Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, in a losing effort. But I played it before on this show. You know, it's my probably my favorite match building uh, television commercial 
is the pink tights. What the hell is that all about, Brett? This ain't no ballet class. Sunglasses and sparklers. What a load of crap. One of the best uh, produced commercials ever for a pay-per-view uh, to build this matchup. Uh, classic match. Uh, 28 minutes, 36 seconds. The uh, awesome finish where Brett uh, catapults the million-dollar dream sleeper hold into a pin, beating Stone Cold Steve Austin, who then watches Brett in kind of stun disbelief. And um, it's a great celebration by Brett. He goes all around the ring. He even gives Vince a big hug as he goes through. And, um, you know, we were thinking big things ahead for Brett, and I don't think anybody could have anticipated in – the uh, fall of 96, what we would see Brett doing in the fall of 97 uh, with how great this uh, returning hero was welcomed by not only Madison Square Garden, but then by Vince McMahon himself at ringside. Just uh, crazy to see that the Montreal Screwjob was only a year away. Uh, the next 4-4 four four Survivor Series elimination match saw the hodgepodge team, uh, to say it lightly, of the now-debuting Nation of Domination leader, Farouk, alongside Clarence Mason and the debuting PG-13 with the Nation of Domination rap, uh, teaming with the man they call Vader and Jim Cornette, who would go on to be at commentary for this match, and the Diesel Razor Ramon tag team. Uh, we talked about them fairly recently as well on the airwaves here. Taking on the team of, ready for this, the debuting Flash Funk. Get to that in a second. Savio Vega, the just absolutely immense Yokozuna, and the surprise guy, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, who was uh, inducted into the WWF Hall of Fame the previous evening by the magnificent Morocco. Now let's back up to Flash Funk. For us ECW fans from 1996, we knew him as Too Cold Scorpio. Obviously, we knew him in WCW as well. But in ECW, Too Cold Scorpio was ridiculously amazing uh, on another level with the matches, the moves he would pull out the tumbleweed, the 450, just stuff you uh, would never imagine back then. Now it's in every match as a transition. But uh, when the graphic popped up on the survivor series report that this debuting flash funk character was going to be coming and you knew who it was, man, was it a weird feeling to see two cold Scorpio in this pimp attire debuting as flash funk now the positives love the flash funk character like the theme music love the funkettes thought it was pretty or was it, yeah the funkettes thought it was cool um it worked it was a wwf gimmick the exit of two cold scorpio out of ecw is one of my favorite ecw moments that there ever was at november to remember 96 which is also i think my favorite ecw event of all time uh two cold scorpio declares um, first he's going to miss ECW then goes on to say, Oh, he's not going to miss ECW tells the fans to fuck off and then says he's not going anywhere until somebody beats him and sets stipulations for each guy that he faces that if they lose to too cold, they're gone from ECW for a certain amount of days. And it's a handful of guys. I think it's uh, hack Myers is one. Uh, Devin storm is another, and uh, I think JT Smith is the other before Taz comes out and doesn't do anything. No hand-to-hand -hand combat. All he does is get in Too Cold's face and sees him out of the company and Too Cold leaves. And that's the end of Too Cold Scorpio and ECW until he would be back, I think, towards the uh, 
tail end of 98 after he left the WWF. But uh, debuts here. This match was such a complete waste of time uh, because they were clearly short um, from the uh, Bret Hart-Steve Austin match. This match only gets nine minutes and 48 seconds. Now, I have to point out the mystery partner being Superfly Jimmy Snuka. If you're a fan from that time and you were on the internet, you remember the rumor was that that was supposed to be the macho man Randy Savage returning to the WWF. He was written off of WCW television at Halloween Havoc. There was talk his contract was up and that he was coming back to the WWF and that he was the mystery partner at Survivor Series 1996 because he was the mystery partner taking the place of Mr. Perfect at 1993's Survivor Series, uh, where if you go back and watch that, he gets the biggest pop of the night. Um, love the Superfly. Very cool to see him fly again in Madison Square Garden. But when you were expecting the Macho Man Randy Savage, man, was it real weak to see the Superfly. And I remember being just completely deflated hearing that Superfly snook a music hit. And you got a good reaction, but it was not if it was the Macho Man. If it was Macho Man, the place would have blown the roof off of Madison Square Garden. And I've been in that building where you think the roof is going to pop off. That would have been one of those times. Uh, but basically it's everybody gets disqualified. They all hit the ring. They're using chairs. It's uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, the most notable thing of course, is the nation of dominations debut uh, and Farouk with the salute. They didn't really know what to think of it. The crowd's kind of sitting on their hands cause they're not sure what to think of it. Um, but really this saved Ron Simmons career in the WWF was this move from Farouk Assad, the gladiator to Farouk, the militant leader of this uh, nation of domination group. Uh, finally, getting on to the main event of the evening challenger, psycho Sid, who defeated Vader the previous month to become the number one contender takes on Shawn Michaels with his manager, super sock, Jose Lothario, his mentor who served literally zero purpose at ringside with this uh, young heartthrob that Shawn Michaels was uh, the storyline in this is that, New York City hated Shawn Michaels with a passion. He was completely booed out of the building. Nobody was on the Shawn Michaels uh, uh, train at that point. The WWF was a sinking ship, and Shawn Michaels was uh, basically the captain seeing it go down the tubes. Uh, New York, being the hostile crowd it is, was so behind Sid at that point, and Sid basically couldn't have been any more over at any point in his career in any organization than he was that night in Madison square garden. Uh, from the minute, the, the first thump of Shawn Michaels entrance music hits, they're booing him through the hand slaps around the ring. They're booing him through the pyro. They're booing him. Now Shawn Michaels being the smart worker. He is feeds off of that. He feels it. And you can see little elements of how he was using that to his advantage during the match. Uh, the finish itself, you know, I don't love it, but it worked at the time. This match goes 20 minutes and two seconds. Uh, the finish coming where Psycho Sid uh, grabs a camera from the cameraman, and as Jose Lothario ascends the, uh, the, the ring apron, he gets knocked off by Psycho Sid and the camera, uh, presumably goes into a cardiac arrest, and Shawn Michaels, who is getting booed out of the building, uh, then goes to the aid of his mentor 
And while he's at the aid of his mentor, urging people to come get this man who's possibly going into cardiac arrest, uh, Psycho Sid grabs the same camera. Yeah, he hits him in the back with the camera, then says very, very clearly, fuck you three times into the uh, <laughs> into the uh, the basically microphone hanging over his head and um, rolls him in the ring, power bomb, and that's it. It's uh, it's over. Psycho Sid wins. Uh, I love the beginning of this where Psycho Sid's pyro debuted, the big Sid. Uh, I believe it debuted at this one. Uh, the big Sid pyro and Psycho Sid becomes a WWF champion and nobody cared about what was going on to poor Jose Lothario and Shawn Michaels is last seen literally crawling uh, up the, uh, the, the entranceway to the back to follow Jose Lothario. But it's just a chilling uh, final image of Sid on the, uh, the ropes celebrating uh, with the music playing. And basically you felt the, the change in the era that now Psycho Sid was going to maybe bring it a little bit more uh, back to what we knew of the WWF with those big monster champions uh, only to lose it back to Shawn Michaels at the Royal Rumble in San Antonio. And that match, I don't like that match is not very good at all. This match is fantastic. A uh, little longer maybe, but again, the the timing on some of these matches is so weird that, uh, you know, it is what it is, but it's a great match. I mean, I really do enjoy it, and it's probably one of the best championship matches of this era. Maybe going back to uh, the previous Survivor Series, 95, with Diesel and Bret Hart, that was an amazing uh, championship match um, with the infamous table spot where Bret goes through the table, uh, the kind of Diesel heel turn at the end of the match. Um, just fantastic stuff. I mean, you know, they always up their game at the Survivor Series, and I have to say, you know, even though I don't love the departure from the traditional model, this one works a lot. And this is a great card from top to bottom. And if you don't believe me, why don't you go back and watch it this uh, Thanksgiving as we're a couple days out as I'm recording this. I always love to go back and watch some of the Survivor Series buildup because even though this one, let me see, the date on this was November 17th, 1996. So you had a good probably 10 days before Thanksgiving at least in 96, you know, I do love the traditional Survivor Series at Thanksgiving time build. Um, I miss that. That that was always a lot of fun. I'm sure the guys like it a lot more that they don't have to travel on Thanksgiving and they can be with their families. But if you got nothing to do during this Thanksgiving little uh, holiday we have coming up, throw on Survivor Series 96. Does it hold up? Let me know your thoughts. Let me uh, let me let me pick your brain if you think that it does hold up. And uh, is a stellar show because, again, from top to bottom, those uh, 18,000 plus at Madison Square Garden were in for a hell of a night. And uh, it's great to look back on. So I hope you do so. Um, and you did it because of me, the chatster. So let's get out of here for this week on New Generation Declassified. Uh, hey, I've got 20% off uh, at belowthecollar.com. If you want to get yourself a Chadster t-shirt, I think that the uh, the... Let me see. I'm going to pull it up here as I just cleverly doing this as I'm talking, but you can go to below the slash IB exclusives, and you could use the promo code BF 2022 and you can save 20% off everything in the IB exclusive store, which uh, is the IB exclusive shirt and the Chadster logo shirt. So why don't you go ahead and uh, grab those and uh, you won't be disappointed 
Go to ibexclusives.com for my Black Friday sale, which I will be posting everywhere over the next couple of days. Tons of great deals. Uh, if you're a Creative Control listener, use the code CCN20 to save 20% off. That's a special little discount for all you great supporters of uh, the Chadster and Creative Control and all the great things we have going on on that network. And if you want to follow me on social media, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter and at IB exclusives on Instagram. That is enough out of me. I hope everyone enjoys uh, survivor series 96. If you're in the States, you enjoy a happy Thanksgiving. We will catch you next time. This is your old buddy, the Chadster. I will catch you on the flip side.